And we're in the book of Judges, chapter uh, 14. And we started last week looking at the life of Samson. Um, there are more chapters written about Samson the, as the leader or the judge of Israel um, than any of the other judges. And uh, with the exception, if you count Samuel in there, I guess Samuel would be also included, although most of uh, Samuel's ministry as the final judge relates to others, not just himself. But um, Samson is definitely one that many people would be familiar with. If you ask people stories of the Bible, even those that really have not much knowledge of the scriptures usually know that Samson was identified as a very strong individual, a very strong man, um, superhuman strength, and super, I would say supernatural strength because his strength came from God. Um, and to set this up again, as we've done every uh, study in this book, we come to this portion of history in Israel where the nation had turned from God. Um, they had wandered again into you know, idolatry. And in doing so, God allowed others to come and to enslave them and to conquer them and to provoke them in many ways to call out back to the Lord. And God had told, told them that that was going to be the case uh, if they wandered from him. And so this cycle, often we call it that cycle of sin, because they would go into sin after having one generation before them saying, no, we're following you, Lord, and then they would go back into sin and then wander in that way for a while until it got too unbearable, and then they would call out in faith again, and God was faithful to deliver them. He would raise up leaders like Samson and others. Uh, and we've learned as we've studied these characters that really none of them were perfect individuals by any means. They were, some of them were not the people we would have chosen if we were just kind of looking at a resume. Um, I think back to Gideon. You know, Gideon was in the least of the families of the least of the tribes. And, and God says, you're a mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon didn't even think he was a mighty man of valor. He would have been the last man you would have chosen if he just put in a job resume for leader in Israel. But yet God used him. And we've looked at those different judges. And we come to Samson and we found out a little more about Samson in that last week we looked at this idea that he um, was separated unto God even from his birth, even before he was born. Um, God was involved in all of that. And uh, amazing that uh, really Samson was a man that was supposed to be dedicated his whole life, all his days to the Lord. And he was placed under a vow actually a vow that his parents were commanded to take for him, the Nazarite vow, which meant he was separated unto God as a special instrument, as a special vessel, and a special leader later on. And I said last week, you know, Samson didn't have much part in that. Um, I don't know Samson's thinking on that, but I'm sure that that would have been very difficult for him to have accepted a vow that he didn't personally submit to. Uh, and, and sometimes that happens. Um, nevertheless, he was supposed to submit to it because it was in the command of God. And we find out that Samson struggled most of his life, with the exception of the very last part of his life, with following in that idea of separation unto God for a greater purpose. Samson often would, he was able to conquer um, lots of mighty enemies of God, and yet he could not conquer the enemy from within, which was his own will, his own heart. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that today. We 
jump from the birth of Samson into the early life of Samson as an adult. And we're going to pick it up in Judges chapter 14 and in verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. And so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? Or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lamb. And we'll add that God blesses his word, and we ask that he does that this morning. And let me call up my notes here for this. We come to this, again, this uh, account in the life of Samson, and it's really the first account of his public life as seen from not only his parents, but himself, and, and seen from the perspective of what God has written in the scripture for us and allowed that. And we see in Samson, again, this man who, um, he was called to be a Nazarite, he was called to be separated unto God, he was called to be a great leader. We know in the chapters, well, in this chapter in particular, right here in the beginning of this, he had, he had just supernatural strength. He was able to take a young lion in its prime and kill it with his bare hands. That isn't something I have chalked up on my to-do lists, just so you know that. Um, it would be a great kind of brag thing. You know, you could say, hey, I killed a lion with my bare hands. I don't think it would end up that way. I just uh, let you know, probably the lion would win. I'm just guessing, and I might be his next meal. But uh, Samson had this strength, and it was almost like, oh, no big deal. Here's a lion, I'll kill it, you know. And he was a man that was very casual in the way he approached things in many ways. Uh, and I, I find him a man that... In, in many instances in his life, he failed to listen to the warning signals. I was thinking of that um, in an account. I was um, watching a documentary on uh, airline disasters and, and those kind of things, and there was one episode on uh, a Sukhoi uh, Superjet uh, 100 back in 2012, uh, 11 years ago now, um, the Sukhoi company in Russia had come up with a passenger jet that was top and still is state of the art, top of the line, one of the best planes in the world. 
and they were um, going to basically on a, a demo tour bring this superjet around to various airports in the Asian Pacific region and try to you know court buyers for it and the future production of it in doing that. And on May 9th of 2012, um, this uh, Sukhoi 100 superjet uh, took off from Jakarta's airport in Indonesia, the Halim airport. It had 37 passengers, most of them from the airline industry, and they were all potential customers, so they were trying to show off the aircraft as best they could. And eight crew members on top of that, including two of the best seasoned and veteran pilots that uh, came out of Russia for that company had been hired specially to demonstrate this aircraft. And about 25 minutes into the flight, the airplane crashed as it was supposed to be returning to the airport. It was supposed to be just about a 30-minute flight, and it ended up crashing into the side of the mountain. Um, Of course, they go to immediately to investigate every aspect of the crash and how it happened and how could this state-of-the-art jet crash into a mountain with two of the best pilots probably in the world and how could all this happen. And the final report came up with a number of things, including um, just a busy day with air traffic control that didn't watch that they got off course. Um, they found that the crew, the pilots in particular, were a little bit lackadaisical with safety, and they did not intent- attend a, an important safety briefing for that area, and they were unfamiliar with that airport. They hadn't flown into that before. Um, and so they were never really made aware of a big mountain that was south of the airport, and it was outside of their projected flight path, so they didn't really even consider it. Never, there was never a question asked about it, and no one ever told them about it. Um, so they were kind of lackadaisical about that. Furthermore, they were flying in the cockpit with an Indonesian pilot whom they were trying to get interested in you know, for his company buying this plane. And the captain of the Sukhoi flight was distracted by a conversation that was going on as he demonstrated what the plane could do. He also failed to follow the instruments. Neither pilot noticed that instead of traveling north, they were indeed traveling south. The instruments clearly showed that, but in the distraction of the moment, they failed to see that they had not completed a turn and were actually traveling in low visibility in the the clouds in a bad direction. Um, They ignored also the most important thing, which was... uh, state-of-the-art terrain warning system, which most aircraft have been equipped with since the 1970s and even before that, and that is essentially a a final warning system. It works on radar, and it it always is scanning the terrain in front of you, and and as you approach something that you may impact, it'll give you a warning. It'll say, terrain, pull up, terrain, pull up terrain pull up and it'll just do that until you get out of the way of that terrain or or one way or the other and that went off it went off for about 30 seconds and then the pilot thinking it was probably an error shut it off a few seconds later they realized sadly that that was the last warning they would ever get and they crashed into the side of a mountain killing everybody on board 
The tragedy in that is that all the different things that could have gone wrong seemed to have gone wrong that day. But there were warning signs over and over and over again, including final warning of saying, terrain, pull up. And I thought about that as I was, I was looking at that, and that's not unique to just that air crash. There's been a number of those over the years with lots of people on board, and pilots have just failed to yield to the warnings that are in front of them and clearly indicated. And I think of that because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I find that God has given us lots of warning signs. I find in the life of Samson a lot of those warning signs. As we were looking this morning at this text, there were a number of warning signs here. First of all, Samson sees a woman, and I would just stop there and say, whoa, hold on, you know, let's just get this right, you know. Um, men are easily attracted to women, all right? That's the way we're made. But God has given certain warning signs. To Israel in particular, he told them, uh, you're not to go intermarry into the, um, the peoples around you. Uh, they will lead you off into idolatry. That's what he told them. And you will go uh, playing the harlot with their gods. And they were told not to take them to be wives among those nations very clear over and over again in the law that was forbidden and yet what does samson do immediately he sees a woman he says i want her as my wife he didn't stop to say well she's not of the people of israel she is from the philistines the enemy and they were under occupation of the philistines at the time um, the Bible says this, that in Proverbs thirteen sixteen, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. Sometimes, for the lack of knowledge, people will play the fool. And, and I can understand that. I, I did that before I was a Christian, before I had this book in, and had it in my life that I would go to it and look at it. Sometimes I'd play the fool because I didn't know any better. And then there were times, too, I knew better, but I still wanted to be the fool. And I did foolish things. Sin will do that. Sin will deceive you. Sin will bring you further than you want to go, right? It will always do that. And we find in Samson this man who so often he played the fool. He didn't, you know, yield to the warning signs that were all around him. And he would go out and he would do that. Well, if you want some points, I guess point one would be Samson's carnality on display. Because that's what it is. Samson's carnality on on display. Carnality is the, the root word meaning carn, meaning the flesh. Uh, and we often talk about carnality as a, as a product of the flesh. And that's what we see with Samson. He couldn't control his own flesh. He couldn't control his eye. He sees a woman, he thinks a little bit further and says, I want that woman. And then he goes out and he sets a plan in motion to get her as his wife. Now, later on we'll talk about this. He had more than just that in mind. But what he was doing was going about it in a bad way. And I think that it would end up um, very, very badly with him. And by the way, this is not unique in this occasion because we find in chapter 14 here, you have the woman of Timnath, all right? And she will get Samson in trouble. Uh, then you have a harlot in Gath, that's in Judges 16, and she gets him in trouble. And then Delilah, in the story of Samson and Delilah, right? And she's the other one. He had a woman problem. And I would say he had a womanizing problem more than anything. 
And I will just say, men, and I address you, you know, right, right as clear as I can, beware of your eye and your heart, they're both connected, and beware of where those, your eye will lead you and put those stops in your life so that you aren't chasing after every woman that's out there. And if you're a married man, you shouldn't be chasing after any other woman than your wife. And I would say as a single man, you ought to be very selective as a, as a believer. You, you have criteria in the scripture, very clear. And if you're a believer, the Bible says that you shall not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that means don't go and seek out someone who's not a believer. And, and you can. I mean, there's nothing. The state won't stop you. You can legally be married and all of that. But I can tell you most often it brings great heartache. Uh, down the road not not always sometimes that that spouse will believe and and come to faith in christ but that's often the exception don't go into a relationship thinking that's what i'm going to do i'll just say more often than not it's easier to take somebody down than bring them up right and that's the principle in all kinds of different laws right not only spiritual laws we find samson had that wandering heart and it says, now Samson went down to Timnah, he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines, and so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines, now therefore get her for me as a wife. He knows nothing else about this woman, other than she apparently pleased him, at least his eye, and he thought, I want her as a wife. Now if that's the only... Um, criteria that you have for a wife that says first of all a lot about you what the value you place on woman she's nothing more than an object of your eye and at this point object of your lust and that's exactly what takes place with samson in his life and i would dare say that um, god places much more value on a woman than something like that men can devalue women and by the way women can put themselves in that place where they are devalued don't do that all right i say that ladies don't do that you are a prize in the sense of a valued not possession but something that god has made and made very special and in your beauty um, there can be a spiritual healthiness to that beauty not just a carnal attraction that so much of the world tells us is the most important thing be careful he goes on to say this then his father and mother said to him is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren uh, or among all my people and there's number one all right terrain pull up terrain pull up terrain pull up it goes unheeded just like that Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. There's this sort of just the dialogue that's going on here is that you wonder who was raising Samson. Was Samson raising Samson or were his parents raising him in the sense they should have had much influence in his life even as an adult. And apparently it was Samson who was doing all the decision making. I don't find that very... um, you know, very healthy in, in any stretch of the imagination on that. And you, you say, where did they get that from? Well, they knew the Bible. Um, we know the parents of Samson knew the Bible. And if you read in Exodus 34, this is just one of the passages, Exodus 34, 13 says, but you shall destroy their altars, referring to the, the people who were committing idolatry uh, in the land, 
um, and they were to be cast out from that, and break their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. By the way, God is jealous for your affection. And he does it in a righteous manner. It's not like an unhealthy jealousy that sometimes we can have. Um, But in other words, God desires for us to worship him singularly. Not having our worship and affections on everything else. And that's the thing about idolatry. It always leads you away from our one true love, which should be the Lord. And he goes on, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And there's lots of covenants you can make, right? And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And look at the next step. And you take of his daughters for your sons And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. There is a principle that God told his people. And again, clear warning sign. Don't do this because this is what will happen. Your children will go off and play the harlot with foreign gods, with other gods, with with idols that cannot hear, cannot speak, cannot save. Wow. I think we need that sometimes before us all the time. Actually, the Jews were told to keep that before them all the time. Why? Because in the moment of the stresses of life and everything else, we lower our standards for but a moment, and it gets us in a lifetime of trouble. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, Nor shall you make marriages with them. <clears throat> you shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. That was very clear. Not to do it. And yet, that's what he did. In all of this going on in his life, Samson's life, I think he forgot the very fact that he was supposed to be separated unto God first. Remember last week we looked at this in Judges 13. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now uh, drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's quite a stretch, right? From his womb. And again, there's God validating life in the womb, just so you know. Because that's where life starts. And you have to exclude all the scriptures that deal with that to come up with a conclusion that life doesn't start until you take your first breath. Including denying science itself. I deviate. (laughs) The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. He was to be separated unto God. And yet we find in Samson's life over and over again a lack of that separation. And when he comes of age and he's making his own decisions, guess what? He's making very poor decisions. Not as a Nazarite, but as someone who's following his own carnality. In the New Testament, we as believers are given another principle. I think it goes even deeper. It's not based upon just law and legalisms, but rather based upon the residence of the Holy Spirit, who's supposed to have 
taken up residence in you at salvation. That's what he does. And he seals us on the day of redemption and we get a new nature. And look what Paul says here. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Not just this active force out there that some people think the Holy Spirit is all about. He's actually a person. He's in you. He's God, the Holy Spirit. Whom you have from God. And you are not your own. We are not our own. Wow. That's a warning sign. But it's a a positive affirmation too. You see... We're not just told to don't do this and don't do that. Some people, that's their whole religious experience. It's the, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't go with those people and I, I go to church and I was baptized and I give money and, I, and they have lots of eyes and eyes and eyes. Christ wants a relationship with his people because he's in us at a heart level. And Samson's heart really until the end of his life, never really belonged to God. And I find it so tragic because as a young man, he could have done so much more. <clears throat> and yet the testimony of his life is really that God still used him in spite of who he was. <clears throat> For you were bought at a price. That price was the, the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of the Son of God. That's a heavy price. Think about that price for a moment. He died for you. If you were the only person on earth, I don't care what sin you've ever done or what you have committed or, or, or anything, he still would have come for you. Because you and I needed a savior. We were bought with a price. It wasn't money. I mean... I know there's some very wealthy people out there and they probably could buy just about anything this world has. But they can't buy salvation. See, that was paid for by God himself at the cross and his death was the payment for sin. Not his sin, our sin. And he offers you a free gift. He offers you a gift of salvation. And he says, accept my forgiveness and I will forgive you. It's that simple. But if you'll reject the gift, you're rejecting the only lifeline that God offers. There's no other way of salvation. None other name given among men by where we must be saved. That's what the book of Acts says. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Your body belongs to him. Wow. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. Who gave himself, referring to Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Again, another positive thing. He bought us. That's what redeemed means. The payment that was transacted, a spiritual payment for you, a sinner. And you say the payment was his own blood, his own death, his own life. He brought us, bought us out of lawlessness. Lawlessness. We find with Samson, you know, he was, he was just barely there. You know, he, he kept himself under sort of this umbrella of uh, the Jewish law, but then he would go outside of it. 
And he practiced very lawless things, as we'll see here in a moment. Second number, point number two is Samson's lack of respect. He had a, a lack of respect in his own um, life in the sense that he re- didn't respect his parents. It says, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no, other, no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all the people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. It's just as if his parents didn't say anything. <laughs> you ever had that experience, right? Hopefully it's, you know, I think when children are young, that's sort of the reaction a lot of times. But sometimes they continue and keep going that way. It's not so pretty when their whole life is like that. Even after their parents are gone, there's still no respect for any authority. Beware of that. Work on it while they're young, too. <laughs> it's a lot easier. And, and, and there, there are godly ways of doing that. In Deuteronomy 6, this was the command that was given to the Jewish people. I think by, by application, it's really to any believer. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. See, God always wanted the word of God in the hearts of his people, not just on the outward actions. It's easier just to do the outward, isn't it? You can just show up, and as long as you look okay, and you're dressed right, and your life is okay in this area, you know, people think you're doing okay. But God wants your heart. That's the inner person. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The Jews were instructed to teach the law and to teach the precepts of God diligently to their children. That's not just like, hey, here's a picture Bible, go in the corner. Now, I had picture Bibles for our kids, and I'm not saying get rid of your picture Bible. Raising a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord takes more than just giving them a picture Bible or a coloring book and saying, Go learn about Jesus. It takes an example of a father and a mother, hopefully in that home, not always the case, but it takes an example of a spiritual leader in their life that will draw them to want to learn more about Jesus. That's what it says here. And you, it says, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, And when you lie down, and when you rise up, that's all day, all night. How many of you had a child in the night you were up with? (laughs) Okay, Some of you, young moms, you you have that. Sometimes it's not your young children. Some call in the night, and it's a child. An adult, maybe. Listen, take those opportunities, instead of just complaining about that crying child, to pray with them to read the Bible to them, to sing hymns to them, or little Christian songs. You won't believe how deep that sits in a heart when some of the earliest memories of a child is of a godly parent holding them and, and caring for them in a nurturing way, and they learn the truth of the Word of God in that moment. Because they'll learn far more that way than coming to a, a lifetime of Sunday mornings. I hate to say it. If you have that opportunity of influence in a child's life, you do it. You do it. 
to teach them diligently. The word to teach there is the Hebrew word to cause to learn. Sometimes we think of teaching as, as dispensing of knowledge, right? And you who are teachers like Kristen back there, you know that there's a difference of just dispensing knowledge and causing students to learn. The best teachers in my life that I ever had were people that caused me to learn more than they taught me because they sparked an interest in me that caused me to go deeper even in some areas than they had. And I'm not wiser than my teachers. I'm just saying this, that they sparked something in a young mind and they did that. And as a parent, you are to cause your children to learn. Not force them to learn, but to cause them, to make them want to learn. Let's do that. Let's cause them to learn. I'm being a little hard on people today, aren't I? I don't know. I'm feeling it myself, just so you know. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I think there's a responsibility we have that we take so, so casually sometimes. And Samson, his life was a life of casualness. And I wonder what his parents really taught him when he was growing up. I don't know. They tried, obviously. I think they, they must have kept him in the box most of the, the growing up years. In the box, I mean, you know, what they had for parameters to make him look like a good Nazarite. But then when Samson got out of the box, he was hard to get back in. <clears throat> Ephesians 6.4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Right? Well, third point. We see Samson's pattern of disobedience. He had a repeated pattern in his life of disobedience. And, and I, I say that if you examine any life, I don't care... Um, <laughs> anybody because we're sinners okay you will see times where we disobey god and hopefully it's nothing that's going to wreck your testimony your home things like that but we are sinners even saved sinners and you can disobey god and the measure of a person is how you deal with that disobedience right do you turn from it and obey a life of repentance i think that's important and with samson he he never really got there he just was someone that would do his own thing in spite of the consequences of that, in spite of how it affected others. And we read of that. It says, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and his mother, so they're complicit with him, and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, um, I, I would stop there and say, Wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why are you in the vineyards? See, Samson was a Nazarite, And according to the vow of the Nazarite in chapter 6 of Numbers, it says, And he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. I wish my raccoon thought that way because he ate all my grapes this year. And Lydia saw him last night. He was as wide as he is tall and long. He's a balloon of a raccoon. He ate about 100 pounds of grapes, I think, on my grapes. Raccoons don't need to take vows against grapes. But Nazarites did. And you know, Samson's down in the vineyard. He shouldn't be anywhere near there. Sometimes we end up in sin simply because we end up toying with the location of sin or the people who bring you into sin or whatever you know sometimes 
bad company corrupts, right? Good manners, as the scripture says. And that's the way it is sometimes. Uh, we just are not supposed to be there. Get away from there. I don't care what it is. It may not be grapes. It may be some other area. Don't go there. Don't. Get off things, you know. Put things away. Put some walls in your life of, of separation and protection in your own spiritual walk. For Samson, no big deal. I'll hang out in the vineyard. Goes on to say this, and, and uh, again, um, in verse 4, All the days of his separation, shall, um, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, or from seed to skin. In other words, that's pretty clear. Don't go near it. In the New Testament, actually it's a quotation of the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, given to all believers, it says this, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. In the context of that, Paul's teaching on the Christian separation from sin. In other words, as harsh as the law was in telling, for instance, we'll come to it, that Samson wasn't even to touch a dead body. <clears throat> and what does he do? He kills an animal and then goes back and touches it, you know? Told him not to get married to, to women of, of these other nations that would draw you away into idolatry. What does he do? He goes and does it. <clears throat> he had a pattern of disobedience so often. Now, in verse 6, I'm going to jump ahead here. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And again, there's a picture here. he's, He's doing something that is an amazing feat. I would say that. And I would say, wow, you know, here's a supernatural strength that this man has. He tears a lion apart. But the fact is, he wasn't supposed to be playing with dead animals or dead people or dead things, okay? He was being disobedient. Verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And again, there's a picture here. What he does and then what he goes further to do, it's one thing that leads to another to another. And I think Samson probably knew better, didn't he? He was raised in a household of, that would have had to have learned the scriptures. Now, whether those things were in practice in his whole, I don't know. But I do know this, that his parents sent up those warning signs many times over. And I would just say this, in the book of James, in chapter 4, there's a warning given to Christians. And it says this, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There is a time where we can sin because we just don't know any better. But this is the willing kind of sin. Samson knew the Nazarite law and the vows and what that entailed. And yet he just decided to disregard that. In Numbers 6.12 it says, And he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. In other words... There is this idea of a Nazarite could end up in defilement of something. And he really had to go and renew that vow. And it involved the death of a male lamb. There's a picture in that, in this, that 
when we violate a holy God and his righteousness and his law, which we break, because I will tell you, when I look at the law of God, the Ten Commandments even, I will say that it is hard to get past the first one to have no other gods before me. Because there's times we put things before God. And I say, God, I broke your law. I am a sinner. But he says there was a male lamb that was sacrificed for you. And his sacrifice was so good that it was once for all. Who's that male lamb? It's the one that John the Baptist identified as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself. And he is pictured in the sacrifice offering even for the Nazarite who violates his separation. Chapter four, 14, verse 4, I skipped over this, but it says, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now, if you just take that verse out of context or whatever, you can say God was the one who put all this sin in um, in uh, Samson's heart and made him violate his vow and did all that and, and he was, it was because God did that and that's not really what's teaching here on the sovereignty of God what it's teaching us and it's very simply is that God can take even the sinful things we do and bring good out of them now that's because God is powerful and great and he can do that <clears throat> he can also do it with people who are obedient and follow him in the whole heart And more so, that's what he wants us to do. And I say that because there's much occasion in Scripture where God did mighty things. Like, for instance, uh, the account of Judah, and he sinned with Tamar, and a child was conceived out of that relationship. Later on, through Tamar, you find in Matthew chapter 1, the family of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar's in there. And you, and you say, well, how did that happen? Well, it came out of a relationship that was an adultery situation of a father and his daughter-in-law. And he said, whoa, that's not, that'll bring a scandal. Well, yeah, it will, but God used it. It doesn't mean Judah was off the hook. He still would have had to give account for his actions in that. Or how about David's sin with Bathsheba? I think you have lots of scripture evidenced in that, in David's repentance and his contrition over the sin that he committed. And yet again, you find Bathsheba, is also in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. I could put out Rahab. (laughs) She was a sinner in Jericho. Rahab the harlot. That was her title. And yet she's also mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Wow. You come to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 and it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and he shall save his people from their sins. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I misquoted that. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. See, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you can never sin so far where God's grace can't reach you if you're willing to repent. And God can take sin and evil and bad things and he can still bring good out of them. I can't do that. God can He can take utter chaos in a home and bring order to it when people get right with the Lord. He can do that. He can put a sinner's life back together if you'll let him. But we're reminded we all give account to the Lord. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. 
And then fourthly, Samson's sinful deception. In the last part of this, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one uh, would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And I, I imagine it's because, you know, he thought, well, I, although I did something and God was with me, I didn't do something in the right way. He ended up, you know, doing that. And I, I, it could be arguable, you know, I think there were in... And uh, in the law, even consequences to self-defense, where sometimes something would die or someone would die or whatever, and the person, if it was truly a self-defense thing, um, they were not held accountable for that sin because it was for their life and the protection of their life in that. And that principle, I believe, is still in effect. But and that could be the case here with the lion. I mean, hey, I had to tear the lion apart. It's killing me or going to kill me. And he did that, and God was with him. But it was the second part of that. He goes down to Timnah, and he's really pleased with this woman down there. And he's on his way back, just kind of skipping along. And as he's come along, he sees the old carcass of the, of the uh, lion. You know, I don't know how many days it had been there in the sun or whatever else, but I can imagine it was dead, and it was probably you know starting to skeletonize and all that stuff. And inside that carcass bees had taken up residence and i don't know why they would do that but they did and they were making honey going on it says and he went down and talked with the woman and she pleased samson well after some time when he returned to get her he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion there's warning number two right or three really where he's he turned aside to go see the carcass of the lion as a Nazarite, he wasn't supposed to touch a dead body. He wasn't supposed to drink anything of the vine or even touch it. Yet, where do we find Samson so often? He's back in the place where he could fall back into sin very easily. He goes and looks for the lion. No, look at that. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. And he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating. Hey, nothing sweeter than honey. And there the bees have made it. One problem, it came from inside a dead body. I don't know if you knew, you know, if you went to the supermarket to buy honey or, or the local farmer or whatever, and on the label it says, uh, not, you know, clover honey or, or something like that, but out of the dead lion, you know, dead lion honey. I don't think that would be a good marketing ploy. But nevertheless, that's where it came from. Unfiltered, Yeah. <laughs> And you know, here we find Samson violating his vow. And then, look what it says. But he did not, uh, he gave some to them, talking about his, when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. And it says, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. And again, here's the sin of one person that's now affecting the lives of others. Whether they knew it or not, Samson's sin had made them also unclean. Sometimes we think our sin is very private and it doesn't affect anybody else. Nobody else saw Samson in that carcass of a lion taking honey or whatever. God did. And his lack of separation would cause his parents to also sin. Not purposely, but it caused them to be unclean. And that was part of the, what the law said. The law didn't just say, oh, in your heart, if you, you know 
you know, inadvertently touch a dead body. No, it's just, you know, it's if you touch a dead body. It's that simple. Or anything that touches a dead body. And again, that principle is um, that our sin will bring others down too. And I said this earlier, but I want to end sort of with this, just look, looking at this verse in Romans 5.20. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's why the law is given, so that we see the strength of sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And it says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The great story of the Bible isn't the superhuman strength of Samson or the things that he did and, and those things and many other of the stories that are so... But it's really about God's weaving of his story of grace in spite of sin and offense and the breaking of his law and how he can redeem people back to himself. And my friends, that's simply done by faith. You say, Lord, I believe. I trust in you. I, in doing so, you're receiving his gift of salvation by faith. Samson was a man that, as at least a young man, had a hard time controlling his heart and doing something for the Lord. But you know, I think a lot of people are like that. And I just remind you that grace abounds. Don't trample on grace and continue to sin, but turn from your sin, trust the Lord, and you know what? You'll be saved. Father, thank you for the word of God. We commit it to you to do your work. In Jesus' name. Amen.